Hey, this is Candace Pringle, lead pastor of FE Church, and this is our podcast. All right, well, free the future. How many, just wave at me if you were here with us last week. If you're watching online, type I was here last week so I can see that later. Awesome. So we started off this Free the Future series last week, and we specifically talked about the church, right? Freedom Valley Church, what God is calling us to in this season. And really what he's calling us to, if you missed it, is he's challenging us to do more, right? Give more, tell more, serve more. We just talked about the church last week. And I promised, though, that we would also dive into what that means for us as individuals, right? What that actually means in our lives, because God has promises for us, so many promises for us. And yes, we have to focus on the church, but we also see the promises of God through that. Now, I want to start off today with a question. Not one that you're going to answer out loud, but a question you're going to think about throughout this. And most of us would say that we believe what's written in the Bible is absolute truth. Right? If, if you're a believer, if you're a Christian, you believe what's in the Bible is absolute truth. We may not understand all of it, but we believe that it's true. Yes? Okay, I did ask you to answer it out loud. Here's my actual question, though. If we actually believed what we say we believe in the Word, how would our lives change? If we actually believed what we say we believe in the word, how would our lives change? If we, if we actually believe that God has my best interests at heart, right? That, that what he says is good for me is actually good for me. Not to hurt me or to keep me from things that are fun, but are, are actually good for me. What if I, I actually believe that he knows best? How would that change? my relationships? How would that change how I interact with the people around me? How, how would it change my thought life? Right? My behavior that flows out of that, how I process the world around me. How, how would that change the way I view my coworkers and my family and my time at church even, uh, my wallet? How would that change the way that I lived if I actually believed every single word in the word. Our series here at Freedom Valley are always very discovery oriented, right? I I like to take you on this journey of discovering what's in the word together. We we discover the truths hidden beneath, right? We, We dive through it. We dig through it and we figure it out together. I believe God wants us to go on a generosity discovering mission today. Really, throughout this series, we're talking about giving more of ourselves in every way. But today, specifically generosity, I believe he wants to uncover and unearth gifts inside of us. We don't even know we have yet. Right? Passion for others you don't even know you have yet. I believe he wants to stir up this generous spirit within us. Our God is a generous God. Amen? I think we've all experienced his generosity at one point or another. And the closer we get to him, the more that rubs off on us. We have to understand that spirit of generosity because it's so much of who God is. And it is our job, as we'll talk about next week, to tell the world 
about that, that love, that God is real, God is good, and he loves us so much. So last week I challenged you all. All right, we have the little Free the Future cards in the bulletin. Some of you filled them out online if you're watching online, right? We, we challenged ourselves. We asked God, what are you asking of me today? And some of you probably took those home. If you brought them back today, having thought about it and prayed about it, we'll take those later. But give more, tell more, and serve more. And I told you last week, and it was one of those rare weekends we just talked about the church. So many of you responded to that challenge, though. And, and like I said last week, so many of us were already feeling it. Right? He was, the Holy Spirit was leading all of us together to give more, tell more, serve more. It's amazing how many of you were already feeling that challenge before I even said anything. But over the next few weeks, we're going to dive deeper into each one of those. Give more, tell more, serve more. Today, it's about giving. You know, it often surprises Christians when they discover just how much the Bible talks about money. It's a lot, actually. There, in fact, there are about 2,300 verses on money. 2,300 verses about money or wealth or possessions. Right? Jesus also talked a lot about money. In fact, 15% roughly of his teachings were about money. 11 out of 39 parables about money, wealth, or possessions. If he talked about it so much, it's obviously important to who we are, to how we follow him, to, to everything that is our faith. Now, during offering time every week, we, we usually say something like, now is the time that we worship God by giving back to him. And we really believe that giving is an act of worship, right? That we get to give. We don't have to give. We get to participate in what God is doing in the kingdom, and we consider it a privilege to do so. He allows us to participate in what he is doing in the kingdom. He includes us in his plans and allows us to participate in that. Isn't that a privilege? It's an honor. That's how my family looks at it. It is an honor to be able to give into that. And some of you might shake your heads at that statement and say, amen, pastor, preach it, right? But the reality is most of us probably don't actually believe that. I might say we do, but the research actually says that we don't. A 2007 Barna Research Group study revealed that only 5% of Americans tithed in 2007. Among those that do, evangelicals were the most generous, but still only 25% of us tithed. Pushpay, the app that we use to process our online giving here at Freedom Valley, reported that in 2019, tithers only make up 10 to 25% of any congregation. And let me just remind you, Pushpay processes Hillsong gifts as well. 10 to 25% of any congregation. Now, Freedom Valley, our church partners... Uh, some churches call it members. We call it partners here. We believe that they're partnering with us in ministry. You know, it's, it's those of us who've committed ourselves here to give here, to serve here, to partner in ministry together here. Only 66% of us tithe. Uh, that number should certainly be 100% because we've committed to it, right? But, but even that number would only be about 31% of our weekly congregation. These numbers are making me squirm a little bit. It's okay. They're making me squirm too. So do we honestly see it as a privilege 
Do we honestly see it as a privilege? Do we even know what that means, really? Oh, early in our marriage, I told you a little bit about the story last week, but Aaron and I, we, we were doing the bills. You know, we're a young couple. We're obviously both grown up in church. We know what it means to tithe. We know how to be obedient, but we still struggled with this concept. And I remember early in our marriage, I was sitting down to do the bills, and I was looking at, at the numbers and thinking, this isn't going to work. <laughs> I, I, I don't have the money to pay them. I certainly don't have the money to tithe. God, ha- how am I going to do this? I believe what your word says is true. And I remember distinctly having this conversation with God at my dinner table, just thinking, God, I, I know I, I believe, but right now I don't know if I believe, right? I identify so much with, with the guy the dad who was coming to Jesus asking for his son to be healed, right? Do you remember the story? And he said, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. And that's what I was saying to God. Like, God, I believe, but do I, though? And I, I remember looking over it and just having this, this conversation with God, and God said, do you trust me? Do you trust me? And I said, yes. I said yes, but did my actions reflect that? Like, do you actually trust me? And I remember just having this moment, like, I can't say that I don't trust you. I've seen too much. I've seen so many people healed, miraculously healed around these altars, around the world on mission trips growing up. Like, I I remember drawing on all these experiences, having grown up in the church. I, I can't say that I don't believe. I can't. I've seen too much. <laughs> You've brought me out of too much. You've changed the person that I am. I, I, of course I believe. Of course I believe. And again, the question came, do you actually trust me? And I said, okay, God. I'm going to put my money where my mouth is. I trust you. I'm going to tithe first. And I'll trust you to work out the rest. That is your promise. After all, you will open the windows of heaven for me, pour out so much blessing. I won't even have room enough for it all. I'm believing you, God. I'm believing it. And we did, and we still do, continue to tithe and give over and above that for probably 10, 12, how long have we been married? 14 years now, next month, (laughs) or the month after that. And I wish I could say that fear is totally conquered. Right? Like, like, I never have to think about it after that. Like, I never looked back. Aaron probably never looked back. He's very black and white. This is what we're doing. But uh, fear gets me sometimes. I'm going to be honest. A lot of people think pastors have this magical gift of faith. Can I just let you in on a secret? I'm a person too. (gasps) There were no, like, gasps. I'm surprised. Sometimes people see me at the grocery store and they're like, Pastor Candace, what are you doing here? Like, they don't believe I'm an actual person. Like, I'm a church 24-7. No. I'm a person too. I have fears. I have little mouths to feed, bills to pay, right? Sometimes it's just so tempting. Like, I could use that money elsewhere. And, and I almost convince myself, like, it's irresponsible to give that, right? God, that voice. Do you trust me? Do you actually believe what you say you believe? 
And now that you preach to believe, do you actually believe it? I just, I can't bring myself to not trust him. I've seen too much. There is actually a study, though, that pastors think about giving differently than average Christians. It's in, it's actually linked in the sermon notes. If you want to see it on the app, you can go to sermon notes or go to fe.church slash sermon notes. There's a couple of studies. The ones that I mentioned are all in there. If you want to fact check me, I encourage you to fact check me, actually. But there, there's a, a study that, that looks at how pastors view generosity and how the average Christian views generosity. There is a difference. We may have similar fears and anxieties and, and those kind of things, but pastors actually view generosity as a plan. I mean, the average Christian tends to think, well, if I happen to have it and there happens to be a need and, and you know, it's sort of a random off-the-cuff kind of thing to be generous. Pastors actually view it as a plan. We plan for generosity. I thought that was super interesting at how we look at it differently. We plan for it first. We give first. We take care of the bills later. And so we're going to dive into the subject of generosity today, but I, I want you to understand tithing first because you can't quite understand generosity from a biblical perspective without understanding tithing first. Some people think, well, you know, I, I don't give 10% to, to my church, but I do give it in other places. Isn't that fine? It really isn't. Not from a biblical perspective. Tithe, the word tithe actually means 10% to the temple. It's an Old Testament word. It wasn't something Jesus invented for the church. It, it, it was an Old Testament word. The subject of tithing is foundational to the subject of generosity from a biblical perspective. They're both hard issues, but I believe now that one is more about conquering fear and one is about cultivating a love for others. So we're going to jump into this today. Are you ready? Malachi is where we're going if you want to turn there a while or, or get there on your app if you're watching. Uh, Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. That should have been a trivia question. Where's Jason? He was saying the trivia questions were too hard today. <laughs> yeah, I know they were. But sometimes it's, it's a good thing. Make you dig a little, right? Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. It's essentially a book of disputes between God and his people, Israel, about 100, 100 years after the Babylonian exile and about 400 years before Jesus came, just to give you some perspective about when this happened. It's only four chapters. It's a very small book. But in it, there are about six disputes between God and his people. They're, they're sort of arguing back and forth. It's a very interesting conversation. Whenever God is speaking specifically to people, you want to pay attention, right? It's not often, I mean, we hear from prophets a lot. We hear, you know, what God is like and those sort of things. But when God actually speaks, you want to pay attention to the words he's saying. And so dispute number one in Malachi is, is God saying he has loved his people very deeply. I have loved you very deeply. And that sounds like a great message, right? If God said that to you, your response today would probably be, I know, God, thank you so much. Right? I know I don't deserve it. Appreciate it so much. I'm so grateful for your love. That's how I would respond, I think. But actually, the people respond with, really? How have you loved us? 
you almost want to cringe for them. Like, it's tough words. And dispute number two is, again, God saying, look, I am your father and master, yet you don't honor me, O priest, but you despise my name. Big words coming from God. I'd be scared. I'd shake him in my boots at this point. And yet the priests respond, who, us? When did we despise your name? They're so entitled they can't even see it. Right? So many of us today are so entitled we can't even see it. But this convicted me <laughs> when I read it again over the past couple of weeks. I, I, I think I want to say that really my heart would be grateful to God if he were to say these things to me. Like I would repent immediately on the spot. God, I'm so sorry. I'm so, I'm so grateful for your love. But what if I'm in, so entitled? I'm so far into my pride that I can't even see it like these guys. Malachi 1, verse 7. God gives them evidence. He's now having to present evidence to his own people about what he's talking about here. It says, You have shown contempt by offering defiled sacrifices on my altar. And then you ask, How have we defiled the sacrifices? Again, they're like, We're doing it. What are you talking about, God? How dare you, as if God doesn't know you better than you know yourself. You defile them by saying the altar of the Lord deserves no respect. When you give blind animals as sacrifices, isn't that wrong? And isn't it wrong to offer animals that are crippled and diseased? Try giving gifts like that to your governor and see how pleased he is, says the Lord of heaven's armies. Now, there's some things you have to understand here to really get this conversation. The law given to Moses by God was to bring perfect sacrifices. No blemishes on the animals, right? No blind animals, no lame or, or injured animals, perfect sacrifices. That was the mandate. That was the law. That was their job. And these were the only sacrifices that were worthy to a blameless, holy, righteous, amazing God. It was the perfect things. It showed the utmost respect for the God of creation. Anything with a blemish was the product of sin being in the world, and it showed impure motivations and therefore an un an improper understanding of who God is. To bring him blemished offerings is to not quite understand who he is. Can you imagine going through your herd? Any shepherds in here? <laughs> I feel like that's a weird question today. 2021. But there are still shepherds around now. See, I, I didn't really fully get this, so I started researching just a little about shepherding. And, you know... <laughs> Can you imagine, just imagine for a second, you have lots of animals. Can you imagine going through your herd and searching for an animal that you need the least? Like, what's the lamest sheep that I have? Which is the one that I hate the most? I don't know. Can you hate sheep? And then, you know, you find the one that's, maybe they're a little broken. Maybe they're a little skinny. Maybe they're not producing wool correctly. I don't, I don't, what do I know? But yes, ah, oh, here she is. Here's the one I can spare, right? This is the, the one that I don't need, or I need the, the least. This is the one I'll give to the Lord because all these other ones can make me more money. So I'm going to give this one, the worst one to God, right? To give to God what other people wouldn't want instead of what he deserves is a clear sign of contempt, God says contempt for who he is. It's just religion. 
fulfilling an obligation at the bare minimum, not participating in a relationship that you feel deeply about, right? Not showing actual love for the God of creation. And he says, try giving gifts like this to your governor. Try it. See what happens. Interestingly, the word governor here is not a Hebrew term. Rather, it's Persian. It's, it's Paka, maybe. P-E-C-H-A-H. Paka. It's a Babylonian term. Representing the nation that Israel was still subject to. Remember, they were exiled. They were living in, in lands that weren't theirs. They were slaves, essentially. Now, this means Israel is bringing sacrifices to their God, which are less worthy than those they brought to their oppressors. People they probably hated. They were giving better gifts to their governor. It sounds crazy until you realize that most of us probably spend more money on taxes every year than we give to God. Well, I'm required to, right? Or I'll go to jail, right? So disobedience to the government is actually more expensive than obedience to the government, right? Follow this logic so far? You don't think God works in a similar way? You don't think sin is actually more expensive in the long run than simple obedience? Sin wants everything from you, right? Just a little at first, maybe, but it snowballs, and it snowballs, and it snowballs until eventually it wants everything from you. Not just 10%. Everything. It often baffles me that Christians believe that, that their way of doing things is, is honestly cheaper. Simple obedience brings about the blessings of God. That is the biblical truth of the matter. Like God doesn't want everything from you. He's not being greedy and saying, "How you know, give me 10% or else. He's saying, I can bless you so much if you just trust me. Do you trust me? If I don't pay my taxes, the consequences are way worse. I, I lose freedoms, actually, when I don't give the government what's due. I'm considered a thief, Right? Why do we think God should be any different? One of the most common complaints about churches is that they ask for money all the time. People tell me sometimes I'm brave for tackling subjects like anger and sexuality. I actually think money is a much more brave topic. But really, why do we think God should be different? Why do we think he shouldn't? ask for his house to be taken care of. Now, last week we talked about a love for his church, a love for his house, a love for the temple where we gather together and encourage each other and and meet with God. That's what God's talking about here. And Malachi 1.9 continues. He says, go ahead, beg God to be merciful to you. But when you bring that kind of offering, why should he show you any favor at all? asks the Lord of heaven's armies. He addresses himself as the Lord of heaven's armies, trying to show us that he is more than capable of taking care of you. He is the Lord of heaven's armies, not the Lord of your puny little earthly armies, the heaven's armies, right? When, When you don't 
honor God in the way he asks you to honor him, you're showing him that he's not actually your God after all. He's the Lord of heaven's armies, but he's not the Lord of your heart right now. You're putting greed over him. Therefore, he's not your God. You are. So God says, okay then, you must be able to take care of it. Right? Like, like he said to Job, do you remember this story? Job's complaining about all the things that are going on in his life, and God says, go ahead. You can take care of it, Job. God actually says that if you could do that, even I would praise you. God gets a little snarky once in a while. He says to Job, look at all the things. He lays out the beauty and the majesty of his creation. And he says, if you can do all these things, even I would praise you, Job. I'm not your God right now. You are. Some of us are begging God to rescue us from situations. God, rescue me from this marriage issue. Rescue me from from debt. Rescue me from whatever it is going on. And God's saying, look, you're not there yet. If I rescued you now, it would be enabling behavior that's hurtful to you. God is a rescuer, but he's not an enabler. He's not going to allow you to continue behavior that harms you. He's not an enabler. Enabling selfishness in your life that's ultimately going to cause things that are worse for you down the road. That's not what God's in the business of doing. Learn the discipline of giving God the best. Trust him. Honor him the whole way, the way he asks to be honored. And you unlock a beautiful mercy in your life, unlike anything else. Malachi 1, let's continue, verse 12. But you dishonor my name with your actions. By bringing contemptible food, you're saying it's all right to defile the Lord's table. You say it's too hard serving the Lord. Mm. You turn up your noses at my command, says the Lord of heaven's armies. Meaning you actually think God is a harsh slave driver instead of a good God. Think of it. Animals that are stolen and crippled and sick are being presented as offerings. Should I accept from you such offerings as these, asked the Lord? Cursed is the cheat who promises to give a fine ram from his flock, but then sacrifices a defective one to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord of heaven's armies, and my name is feared among the nations. Do you remember the story of Ananias and Sapphira in the New Testament? It's a, it's a story of warning. Ananias and Sapphira, they bring part of profit from selling a field, but they tell the apostles, the disciples, that, that it's the whole thing, right? You remember this story? God does what? Struck them dead where they stood. This wasn't a new thing to cheat God. Here, Malachi is talking about it 400 years prior or a little over. It's not a new thing. Ananias and Sapphira were part of the New Testament church that was thriving and giving like crazy to each other. They were sharing everything they had. They were selling properties and giving them to the church to be distributed to the poor. But Ananias and Sapphira sold the property, kept that money, some of the money, and lied to the church about it. They told them it was all of it, and God struck them dead on the spot because cursed is the cheat 
who promises to give a fine ram from his flock, but then sacrifices a defective one to the Lord. God is not an enabler. This kind of behavior was happening for hundreds of years. And God said it ends now. No more. Not to my baby, the church. Just a fledgling at that point. He said it cannot happen anymore. It stops here. Malachi 3 verse 6 says, I am the Lord and I do not change. That is why you descendants of Jacob are not already destroyed. Ever since the days of your ancestors, you have scorned my decrees and failed to obey them. Now, return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of heaven's armies. But you ask, how can we return when we have never gone away? See, the Israelites were going through the motions still. They never stopped giving sacrifices, but their hearts weren't in it anymore. They brought stolen animals. They brought defective animals, blemished animals into the house of God, but said they were their best. Smiles on their faces. Happy to do it, God. Happy to be here, but their hearts weren't in it. God wasn't asking them for a return to procedure. He was asking them for a heart return. Right? Any married people in here? The wife probably at some point has said to you, no, I don't want you to just do the dishes. I want you to want to do the dishes. Right? And of course, the husband's like, but who would want to do the dishes? <laughs> the wife's not asking for you to just do the dishes. She wants your heart in it. Right? She wants you to care about the household, to see the need and to do it. I want you to want to do the dishes. This is what God's saying. He doesn't just want you going through the motions. He wants your heart in it. Jesus was the one who said in Matthew 6, 21, wherever your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Right? He's saying that what we do flows from our hearts. We studied this in our last series. Right, the wellspring, it flows from within us onto the world around us. He wants you to want to serve him. He wants you to want to give to him. He wants you to let it flow from your relationship with him. So you can trace what's in our hearts back through our actions. That's what God was saying to me at my dinner table. Do you actually trust me? You can say that you do all you want, but what are you actually doing? The people in Malachi were saying, we're still with you, God. We never left. But God was saying, I can tell differently by your behavior. Verse 8, should people cheat God? Yet you have cheated me. But you ask, what do you mean? When did we ever cheat you? You've cheated me of the tithes and offerings due to me. You are under a curse for your whole nation has been cheating me. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse so there will be enough food in my temple. If you do, says the Lord of heaven's armies, I will open the windows of heaven for you. I will pour out a blessing so great you won't have enough room to take it in. Try it. Put me to the test. He's basically daring them to be obedient. Your crops will be abundant, for I will guard them from insects and disease. Your grapes will not fall from the vine before they are ripe, said the Lord of heaven's armies. Then all nations will call you blessed, for your land will be such a delight. And God is desperate to bless us. 
He's dying to, but he's not going to enable behavior that's harmful. He's not going to be a party to disobedience. And it's a privilege. This is the privilege. It's a privilege to give. It is an honor to give. Withholding from God puts barriers between you and him. He's not putting them there out of punishment. You're putting them there out of mistrust. And God's love is unconditional, but his blessings are conditional, right? We're not talking about works-based salvation here, about earning something. God's forgiveness is free. Cannot earn it. His love is free. All you have to do is accept the forgiveness, right? He wants to give you those things. His love is unconditional. His blessings are conditional. We keep our future locked down by not fully trusting him. Free the future. Trust him. We do that by fully surrendering. Saying, God, I do actually trust you. And not only am I going to say it, I'm going to follow through. I'm going to do what you're asking of me to do. And not only do we get to not experience the curse when we're obedient, but we also get the blessings. We get to experience his goodness too. Why would we ever cheat God when all good things come from him in the first place? James 1.17 tells us every good and perfect gift is from the Father. This is really the beginning of understanding tithing. When we understand that God gave us every good thing in the first place, of course you want to give back to him. Of course I do, God. And when we understand the wellspring concept, right, that, that our blessings aren't just meant for us. God gives us overflow so that it goes on to other people, not just for you to, to bask in his goodness and hoard it all to yourself, but to give it to others. It's living with an attitude that we are blessed to be a blessing. Aaron and I were talking about this the last time I, I preached on tithing, I think maybe a year ago or something. And he said, you know what? It's kind of like cats and dogs. Do you remember this conversation? He said, you provide food and water for them. You know, you put a roof over their head. You give them toys to play with and treats and you let them in your bed. Who's the crazy pet people that let them in their bed? You don't have to admit it. It's okay. And dogs, they love you for it, right? They show up every time you call. They're happy to see you. They show their gratitude constantly. They're eager to please. They like their routine, but they'll go with yours. They'll adjust to yours, generally. Now they trust you and they go with your flow. Whereas cats, I'm not a cat person, so I apologize. Don't at me later. No me mail if you're a cat person. But cats, you, you do the general same things for them, but cats only show up when they feel like it, right? <laughs> you give them attention, but they only give it back when it suits them. They change their routine constantly and expect you to adjust to it, yeah? And some of them complain loudly when they don't get their way. It's a silly analogy, but last time I shared it, someone came up to me after a service and said, I realized something today. I'm a cat. I only show up when I feel like it. I want God to come be in my stuff, to, to bless my stuff. I, I, don't, I don't think I come to him with the right energy, the dog energy, not the cat energy. I don't think I come to him with the right attitude. 
It's an attitude of gratitude for everything that God has given you. And we're blessed to be a blessing. We live with eager expectation that good things come from him. And because of it, we show up every time he asks. We give generously when he asks, not holding anything back out of selfishness, but wholeheartedly honoring him the way he asks to be honored. And he doesn't ask all that much. Right? Not the Old Testament anyway. Jesus came and he changed a lot of things. But he didn't make this part easier necessarily. His yoke is easy, his burden is light, but he asks for all of us. He asks for full surrender. He asks for you to see truly that giving God is a privilege because it brings you in to the streams of his blessings. He, he asks for us to not only be obedient out of going through the motions, but because our heart is in it. He wants you to free the future by just being obedient. And again, this is not works-based gospel. You don't have to do anything to accept Jesus' forgiveness to be in right standing with him for eternity. But step into the streams of God's blessing here. Trust him. And withholding from God puts that, those barriers between us and him. He can't bless you if you're, not, you're off doing your own thing. If you're, you're not fully trusting him. Most of us would, would argue that we withhold out of fear rather than selfishness. I'm not selfish, I'm just scared. Aren't they really the same thing? We're afraid God won't deliver on his promises, so we withhold. Because we've got to take care of ourselves. And we withhold out of fear, but fear and faith, they don't mix. My dad used to always say that tithing tends to be the last spiritual discipline that people conquer. But that's not to say it's the least important. Or rather, I think it might just be one of the most important. That's why it takes us so long to conquer it. It's not just a money issue. It's a heart issue. I, after studying this a while and throughout the whole Bible, I now believe that there are really only two types of Christian non-tithers. The ignorant, you just, you don't know, you haven't been taught yet. And the rebellious. <laughs> when we slack on sexual morality, we're sinning against ourselves, the Bible says. And when we're, we're proud, we fall. Pride comes before a fall. When, when we don't read our Bibles, we don't hear from God. We're not developing our brains. We're, we're hurting ourselves. But when we fail to tithe, we're cheating God. Some translations say that we're robbing him. Can't steal the future. Can't steal the blessings of God. The one who has given you every good and perfect thing. The one that put breath in your lungs. God, the, the creator of everything. The, the, the giver, generous giver. He is he's always productive. And when you put something in the hand of God, it doesn't just sit there. God is a productive God. 
when he does something, he's doing something. Even when it seems like he's doing nothing, he's, I feel like I've said this enough, you all should know it, he's still doing something. He is a productive God. God is a a giver. He is always productive. So what does God do with that money? The money that I give him, what, what does he do with it? Studies say millennials especially, we need to know. We want to know where it's going. Number one, he feeds his people with it. He provides for the pastors, the priests in the Old Testament, the ones who have dedicated their lives to being gifts to the church. He wants his people well fed in the house of God. Number two, he uses it to draw people to him. Verse 12 says that all nations will call you blessed for your land will be such a delight. He uses it. There is blessing. There should be blessing flowing out of the house of God. It overflows out of us onto the people around us. Meaning if the church is tattered and not enough money to fix things and and update them and make them look attractive, we're not fulfilling our obligation to attract the world to him. Why would people want to come to a church that's dead and dying and broken. The money that comes into his church is used to see the baptisms that we see every single year. Right? The the salvations. Three people that gave their lives to Jesus last week and the seven people the week before that and the four people the week before that. Right? The four people we baptized just two weeks ago, three weeks ago. Matthew was one of them. Amen. You're meant to be a stream of God's blessing. We as the church are meant to be a stream of God's blessing. Some of us have turned those streams into rivers for others to be blessed from. Some of us are more like the Dead Sea. And we take in all the blessings of God, but it doesn't go anywhere. Nothing flows out of it. Nothing can survive in those waters. It's it's dead. Why would God keep pouring into that? In fact, we learned a couple weeks ago that he prunes those things that are not productive. Right? We're called to be rivers, wellsprings of life flowing onto the people around us. When we don't tithe, we, we make the name of the Lord look bad. That's why God takes it seriously. It's the basis of biblically based generosity. If you're not tithing, get your house in order. Clean it up. Begin tithing. And then look at what you give over and above that. Because here's the thing. You're never going to reach this this magical number where God will stop pushing you to be generous. All of you in here that, that are tithing, it's not just like, oh, well, I got that checked off. I don't need to take anything away from today. Right? And I'm not saying you have to write out all the money in your checkbook and give it to the church today. But give better the right heart, the right mindset with it, with a love for the church, with a heart for his house. This is not transactional faith, right? To see how little we can give to get the most back. It's different from taxes in that way, right? God's asking for everything, for complete surrender, right? Jesus said, yes, of course, tithe, almost like that's the bare minimum, but also There's compassion and justice and mercy. Those things are going to cost you a lot more than 10%. They're going to cost you to sacrifice for people. The book of Malachi also talks about those offerings. It's not just tithing. And the New Testament takes this approach too. You should tithe, yes, but don't ignore 
justice and, and mercy and faith and compassion. Actually look at people like Jesus did. Look at them. Love them. There's more to it than just fulfilling a financial obligation. This is a, a heart issue. And this year we're going to be challenging ourselves. When I say give more, tell more, serve more, it's not always just more dollars. Like God uses a percentage because it's not just about the dollars. Like who can give the most? So it's a heart issue. Give better. Give cheerfully. Give not under compulsion or obligation. Give because you have a heart for this house. Give because your life was changed in this house and you want to see that for other people. And God doesn't hoard all this money somewhere in heaven. He doesn't have a storehouse of gold somewhere. That's not what we're not shipping off the money. Just, you know, heaven somewhere, this heavenly inbox. That's what kids think. I used to always quiz them. By the way, we, we give it to God, right? We somehow put it in a hot air balloon and get it up there. No. God calls us to give to others, to provide a house where people can hear the gospel. And this year, we're going to be challenging ourselves to give to that house. A tithing is just the beginning. It's the bare minimum of what God is asking us to do. It's, it's how we are to be lined up with the blessing streams of God. And God's going to challenge you. He's going to stretch you. But it's always worth it. Not saying he'll immediately give you back double or he'll give you a raise next week if you tithe today, although I've heard of those things happening more often than you would expect. He will take care of you. You take care of the house of the Lord and he will take care of you. That is his promise. In ways you could never expect. That is the promise of the word of God. And it's not just in Malachi. In fact, those of you that are reading along in our, our church Bible plan, you probably already read today. It's in another place, right? Haggai 1, 3 to 6 says, Then the Lord sent this message through the prophet Haggai. Why are you living in luxurious houses while my house lies in ruins? It was happening for thousands of years. This is what the Lord of Heaven's army says. Look at what's happening to you. You have planted much, but harvested little. You eat, but are not satisfied. You drink, but are still thirsty. You put on clothes, but cannot keep warm. Your wages disappear as though you were putting them in pockets filled with holes. In other words, we can work and work and work and work for ourselves, but if we're not submitting it to the Lord, it might still be worth nothing anyway. Why not just be obedient? He's going to make the grapes not fall off the vine. And he's going to make things work for you. He might keep the tires on your car for longer than you expected, to put it in our context. Right? He might keep the roof from leaking for longer. He's going to take care of you. In verse 9 in Haggai says, You hoped for rich harvests, but they were poor. And when you brought your harvest home, I blew it away. Why? Because my house lies in ruins, says the Lord of Heaven's armies. Well, all of you are busy building your own fine houses. And God's just saying, stop making decisions based in fear. I want to take care of you. It's not you're the victim and you're, you're powerless against the world. The thought that there's not much we can do about the economy or, or about our work ethic or about our job situation, it's just not true. God can. Be obedient and watch him work. Watch him throw open the windows of heaven for you. And Jesus found money in a fish's mouth that he needed to pay taxes. 
He can provide for you. He can pull money out of anywhere. He's God. Stop limiting him with your fear. But also don't make decisions based on greed. Selfishness. Looking out for your own interests. Take care of God's house. And he will take care of you. It all comes down to your heart. Not the dollar signs, not the zeros behind the dollars, not not the bank account numbers. It's what's in your heart. We limit our own future when we look out for our own future only. Look out for others. Look out for God's house, and he will free your future. If you want to be able to look at life with confidence, trust God with your finances. Begin to tithe. Develop a heart for his house and see what God will, will do for you. He literally says to put it to the test, to put him to the test. Try it. See what happens. God loves you so much. He just wants all of you. He wants your trust because he deserves it. He wants to bless you beyond anything you could ever dream of. He's calling you to something higher than you can even imagine right now. If you don't trust him with your finances, you don't trust him. Jesus laid down his life for your soul. God isn't asking you to go out and lay down your literal life for him today anyway. He's just asking for your trust. Don't just tell God you trust him. Show him. It is a privilege and an honor to serve God in that way. Father, today we just thank you. We worship you. We lay down our our hearts, our, our lives, our own will before you. Submit ourselves to you. Maybe today you're saying, I've never had a relationship with Jesus. Never experienced those promises of God. But I want to give my life to him today. I, I know I can't do this on my own. I've messed things up. I, I go with my own plans and they don't work out. And I just want to make Jesus the Lord of my life today. I know he has a better plan. I submit myself to him. God is real. God is good. And he loves you so much. He wants good things for you. He has a plan and a future for your life. He wants to give you a purpose, to bring out gifts and callings in you that you never expected or imagined. Step into his plan today. If you would say, I want to know Jesus, would you just raise your hand? I want to give my life to him, maybe for the first time, for the first time in a long time. Just raise your hand right where you are. Give your life to Jesus. Let's pray that prayer together today. Some of us could use a refresher anyway. Repeat after me. Father, I believe in you. I believe you sent your son to die for me. I accept his forgiveness in my life. And I choose today to live my life for him. Amen. Amen. God is so good. He loves us so much. If you take anything from today, take that. He's worthy of your trust. And trust him today. We'll free the future together. Let's free the future. Your future. Others' future. The, the people who 
a year, two years, three years from now, whose lives are going to be changed because you responded to the gospel in your life. It's going to be changed. And our next step here this morning is to seal this word with prayer. If you're listening to this later, uh, just, just find a way to get your heart set before God as we ask the Lord to apply this word to our lives this week. Heavenly Father, we love you and we thank you. You have freed us. You have breathed life into us. And now we get to be a part of the work of your kingdom. Would you continue to bless and challenge individuals? In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Have a great week, Effie Church. so much for joining us today. If you made a decision to follow Jesus, please let us know by going to fv.church slash I am in. And remember to download our app for more content and helpful links.